Mark 3, 13 to 35. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave them the name of Boanerges, which means son of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Zelial, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciple were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning and uh, to share God's word with you. So uh, it will be very helpful if you keep your Bibles open or your apps or iPads or whatever open at Mark chapter 3. Before we start, let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word that we might trust and obey. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard uh, this saying, you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. Some of us have family members we're stuck with, and if we're honest, we wish we weren't especially at extended family gatherings, like Christmas. Perhaps it's an annoying aunt who's always talking herself up 
and putting down other family members. Or perhaps it's a racist cousin who has no tolerance for asylum seekers but forgets that their parents migrated to Australia and their mother experienced racist slurs growing up here. Don't you just wish you could choose who's in your family and who's not? In Mark 3, Jesus has something important to say about family. Family was very important in the Middle East. It still is in many cultures, especially on our shame cultures. That's why we hear in the news uh, about honour killings, usually of women or girls. Their family members kill them to protect their family dignity. We see that Jesus started a new family that is not dependent on blood ties. In fact, we see later that his own biological family, his mother and his half-brothers, were not members of this new family, at least here in Mark chapter 3. How can that be? What makes you a member of Jesus' new family? We'll look at that later. In verse 8, we see that Jesus' reputation as a healer and exorcist had spread far and wide, drawing crowds of people from all over the place, even the Gentile territory of Tyre and Sidon. The diseases and demons were subject to Jesus' power and authority. In verses 13 to 15, Jesus appointed the 12 disciples, also named apostles. After their appointment, Mark referred to them in his gospel as the 12. Just as God appointed his prophets and servants, so here Jesus appointed the 12. Now, of course, the number 12 reminds us of the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. We know that from chapter 1, verse 15 of Mark. And here we have a reconstituted or new Israel. And what a motley crew these 12 were. For example, Peter, Andrew, James and John were fishermen. Matthew, referred to earlier in chapter 2, verse 14 as Levi, was a tax collector who had worked for the Roman oppressors of the Jews, of the Jewish people. Simon the Zealot was a Jewish national, nationalist who wanted to free his people from the Roman oppressors. And there was even one, Judas Iscariot, who would betray Jesus. In verses 14 and 15, we see that Jesus has two purposes for the 12. And these purposes are summarised by two words. The first is be. They were to be with Jesus. And the second word is do. They were to do the works that Jesus commanded them. Jesus sent them out to preach and drive out demons. Note how Jesus delegated authority to them to drive out demons. 
excuse me. In, now, we're not first century apostles, but these purposes of be and do also apply to us who are followers of Jesus. Can people see that we have been with Jesus in what we say and do? If not, how do we need to change? Being with Jesus constantly, the 12 learned his word and ways. Presence with Jesus is an essential priority to service. Acts 4.13 tells us that when Peter and John spoke before the Jewish rulers and leaders, they did so with courage. And the Jewish leadership realised that Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. They hadn't been to Pharisee University. They were ordinary men. Ordinary is probably better translated as untrained. The Greek word is the root word, uh, is the root of the English word idiot. So that gives you an idea. They were untrained. Yet despite Peter and John's lack of education and training, the Jewish leadership were amazed. But then they realised that Peter and John had been with Jesus. As one commentator noted, the Jewish leadership thought they had got rid of Jesus, but now he reappeared in these two disciples who were troublemakers just like their master. The 12 were the nucleus of Jesus' new family, which we call the church. This will become clearer as we go through the rest of Mark chapter 3. This new family is unique because biological ties, blood ties, don't make you a member of it. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus' biological family heard about how demanding his ministry was. He and his disciples weren't even able to eat. My wife, Kim, is a keen watcher of Korean TV shows. She tells me a common Korean saying when you want to wish a family member well is don't skip meals. So when Jesus' family heard Jesus couldn't even eat on top of everything he did, they decided to do something. They thought he'd lost his mind. So they decided on a family intervention to grab him and take him away with them. The Greek word can be, also be translated as seize or restrain. It's the same Greek word used in, later in Mark chapter 14, verse 46, when Jesus was arrested before his trial and execution. So Jesus faced opposition from members of his own biological family. And it still happens with people who become Christians today. I know a Muslim background Christian whose own mother 
called the police when they became a Christian. Before we get to see how the intervention by Jesus' family worked out, Mark suddenly shifts the scene to Jesus' encounter with the religious officials. This is the first instance of Mark's sandwich style of storytelling. That's where he starts with one incident, like one slice of bread, and then he inserts a second related incident, like a sandwich filling, before completing what happens in the first incident, which is like pudding on the second slice of bread. An official delegation of teachers of the law had come down from headquarters in Jerusalem in response to Jesus' widespread popular ministry of healing and exorcism, verse 22. Now, their intention was anything but honourable. They weren't on a fact-finding mission to understand the reason for Jesus' success. Quite the opposite. The teachers of the law had come to deliberately spread misinformation as to the basis for Jesus' success in casting out demons. The verb translated said in verse 22 of the NIV doesn't do full justice to the original Greek. It's better translated as they were saying or they kept on saying. You see, they were conducting a negative campaign designed to discredit Jesus by repeating a lie over and over. And what was that lie? That he was casting out demons because he was possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Now, today we see that kind of campaign played out in politics, where one party will repeat a negative message about the opposition again and again so that voters will be put off from voting for their opposition. Now, to be clear, the teachers of the law were not questioning whether Jesus had actually driven out demons. They accepted that. Rather, they were slandering the source of Jesus' power or authority to drive out demons. They were saying Jesus is only able to drive out demons because he used satanic power. Here in Mark 3, we find an assortment of names for Satan. The teachers of the Lord called him Beelzebul, which can be translated as Lord of the Abode or Home or House, which, as we'll see, is reflected in one of the parables Jesus told. They also called him the Prince of Demons. But it's Jesus who identified Beelzebul as Satan. Jesus destroyed the argument of these teachers of the law by showing that what they said was illogical. Why would Satan give power to Jesus to cast out demons that were ruled by Satan himself? To show just how illogical their argument was, Jesus spoke to them in parables, verses 23 to 27. 
Now, Jesus' use of parables here was itself a form of judgment on these teachers of the law, as is made plain later in the following chapter, in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. That's where the 12 asked Jesus about the parable of the sower. Jesus said that the secret of the kingdom of God had been given to them, but everything is said in parables to those on the outside. So they don't get the spiritual understanding to turn and be forgiven. The first two parables that Jesus presented to the teachers of the law are closely related. In verse 24, he says that a divided kingdom cannot stand. Now, Jesus is stating a self-evident truth that a divided kingdom will collapse. He makes a similar point in verse 25 about a divided house. Now, here Jesus was referring not to a house that people live in, but to a ruling family, like the house of David. Having spoken these two parables, Jesus then concluded in verse 26, and if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. But then in verse 27, Jesus told a third parable that referred to an attack from the outside. This picture is is of a home invasion where a stronger man invades a house owned by a strong man. The stronger man ties up the owner and then plunders the owner's possessions. All three parables refute the illogical argument of Satan driving out Satan. The third parable in verse 27 also sets out the true basis for Jesus being able to drive out demons. Jesus is stronger than Satan. Therefore, Jesus could make Satan powerless to stop him from taking Satan's possessions, which were demon-possessed people. Every time Jesus drove out a demon from demon-possessed people, he was effectively casting out Satan, since the demons were Satan's servants. Through his exorcisms, Jesus was advancing the kingdom of God. In this way, Jesus freed people from Satan's imprisoning kingdom and brought them into the kingdom of God. Then in verses 28 and 29, Jesus turned the tables on the teachers of the law with a severe warning. We know this is a serious matter because Jesus began with the words, truly, I say to you. In the New Testament, only Jesus used this expression. And this is the first time that Jesus used this expression in Mark's gospel. These words remind us of the prophet's solemn words of threat or promise introduced by, thus says the Lord. 
And so we are to pay very careful attention to what follows. Jesus told the teachers of the law that all sins and blasphemies by humankind would be forgiven, with one exception. There is one sin that can never be forgiven. It's the sin of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That sin has eternal consequences. As one commentator pointed out, in the context of Mark, the sin was attributing to Satan work that the Spirit had done. It was the refusal to see Jesus' work and ministry as being rooted in the activity of God. In the activity, sorry, of God's Spirit. This is clear from verse 30, where Jesus refuted the charge that he was possessed by evil spirits and warned against slandering, that is blaspheming, the work of the Spirit. In Mark, this decisive and firm refusal to understand who Jesus is constitutes an unpardonable sin. At the beginning of chapter 3, Jesus was angry and deeply distressed at the hardness of the hearts of the Pharisees. After watching Jesus heal a man's withered hand, did the Pharisees even pause to consider that Jesus might be the Son of God? No. Instead, they began to plot how they might kill Jesus. In verse 5 of chapter 3, the NIV speaks of their stubborn hearts. But the Greek is better translated as hardness of hearts, of heart. There's no doubt that those who commit the unforgivable sin described here in Mark 3, are hard-hearted, stubbornly dismissing the person and work of the Lord Jesus. It's important to remember that if you're worried you've committed the unpardonable sin, then it's almost certain that you haven't. A hard heart is not concerned about committing that sin. It doesn't care at all. Immediately after Jesus' lively encounter with the teachers of the law, we're told in verse 31 that Jesus' mother and brothers finally arrived at the house where Jesus was located. Those inside told Jesus that his mother and brothers were outside looking for him. Then Jesus made two remarkable statements in verses 34 and 35. He looked at those who were seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Blood ties to Jesus did not mean automatic membership of his new family. Indeed, here his blood relatives were outsiders. By thinking that Jesus had lost his mind, they were dismissing the work of the Holy Spirit 
through whom Jesus performed his miracles of healing and driving out demons. While the teachers of the law viewed Jesus as bad, Jesus' biological uh, family viewed him as man. Neither viewed him as Lord, the God-man, the Messiah, who came to save his people from their sins. Jesus explained who were his new family. They were those like the 12. They were those who do God's will. What does that involve? Well, in John chapter 6, verses 28 and 29, we read that a crowd of people asked Jesus this question. What must we do to do the works God requires? Listen to Jesus' answer. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. While Mark uses the words will of God and John uses the words the work of God, I think they mean pretty much the same thing. So doing the will of God is believing in Jesus, who he is, the son of God, who is Lord. He is God's rescuer and the one who has overcome Satan, the prince of this world, and frees people from Satan's power because he's the stronger man. Later, of course, we know that members of Jesus' biological family believed in him as the Messiah, as the God-man who came to save sinners. Jesus' mother and his brothers get a mention in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as being with the 12 praying together in the temple in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. Jesus appeared to his brother, James, after his resurrection. Paul specifically mentions that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7. And we know that James became a leader. Indeed, Paul calls him a pillar of the church in Jerusalem. Both James and Jesus' other brother, Jude, wrote New Testament letters. So how do you become a member of Jesus' new family called the church? It's simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. He not only conquered sin and death, but he also defeated Satan. Jesus defeated the spiritual powers and authorities because he has driven out Satan. The demons believe Jesus is the son of God, but not out of delight and thankfulness, but out of fear and hostility. They tremble before Jesus. So knowing about Jesus and being a student of the Bible does not save you or me. That does not qualify us to be members of his family. To call God the Father, our Father, and Jesus our elder brother, we must believe that Jesus is not a lunatic, Jesus is not a liar, but Jesus is Lord. This is the work and will of God 
to believe in Jesus as Lord and Saviour. There's no other way to be part of his unique family. Can you call God your father and Jesus your elder brother? If you haven't already joined this unique family, I invite you to take that step of trusting in Jesus. Take that step, even if your own biological family opposes you doing so. Jesus' family is so much bigger, more diverse and more interesting. And yes, there are annoying members too, but then Jesus commanded us to love one another even as he loved us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we can come to you and call you Father because we have put our trust in the one you sent, your unique son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We acknowledge that even our faith in Jesus, the Saviour and Lord, is your undeserved gift. Thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit and have adopted us into your ever-increasing family, giving us more sisters and brothers in Christ from different nations and backgrounds. Help us to love one another, even as you, Lord Jesus, have loved us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you not only conquered sin and death, but you disarmed and defeated the devil. Thank you, Father God, that you rescued us from Satan's rule and brought us into the kingdom of your Son, whom you love. In the all-powerful name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Okay, it is time for the Q&A. And uh, Andrew, if you wouldn't mind, uh, step up to the stage and we'll uh, go through what the questions are. All right, first question. How do, how do we love toxic family members who aren't Christians? Oh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Straight to the big question. <laughs> That's a challenge, isn't it? I don't have all the answers to everything, but... I... I've got, a, I've got some um, toxic family members in my extended family. Mm. Um, I think just got to pray for grace that you would help, help to, that God would help you just to love them, even mm. as he loved us. Mm. Um, you know, you think of how undeserving we are of God's love. Mm. Uh, that should humble us, I think. And it's easy to pick on the negatives of the toxic family member, but it's God's grace that makes us to differ. Mm. And, um, yeah, it's hard work. (laughs) Definitely. It's true. It's hard work. Yeah, it is. But you just got to keep having a a crack, I think. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Um, the next one is just a comment. Uh, thank you, Andrew, for the sermon. Um, and the next question is, if you blaspheme the spirit while you're not a Christian, but then repent, is that okay? Well, I think the answer to that question is um, yes. And I want to enlarge on that a bit mm-hmm. because 
Um, if you look at the way Jesus uh, addressed the Pharisees, it's where you have that, the, the overarching thing, I think, is that you're permanently fixed in that refusal to um, believe in Jesus. Mm. Okay? It's a, there's, a, there's a point of no return. That's where I'm coming from. Mm. So clearly in that instance the question is raised, I think of course they're forgiven because from, to my mind, yes, they've sinned, but it's not the sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It hasn't been such a fixed point of view that there's no budging them at all mm. in um, not even a little window, a little crack to allow the gospel of grace to penetrate the heart. Mm. Okay. So that's, that's my attitude. Yep. Okay. Uh, I think there's one more question. And uh, I've heard people say Christian can't be possessed by demon. Is that true? My personal view is uh, that that is true. That's my mm. personal view because you think of it, we've got the spirit of adoption. We've got the Holy Spirit. Jesus has def- overcome the strong man because he's the stronger one. And he's given us a new heart and he's given us a spirit. And because we have the spirit in our hearts, I personally do not believe that a Christian can be possessed by demons. Right. All right. Thank you, um, Andrew. I think that's all we've got for today. But... Okay. <laughs> yeah. Can I add a couple of comments? Sure. Because I realise that this, this is a big subject, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Mm. So I just want to give a plug to uh, this book, and I've, I've emailed the details to John. So... Mm. Uh, it's by an Australian theologian called Graham Cole, and his book's titled Engaging with the Holy Spirit, Six Crucial Questions, and he has an excellent chapter of, of what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Mm. Um, so can I recommend that to you? And I've given John the details. Uh, perhaps just very three very brief points mm-hmm. from a pastoral point of view. Um, what the what blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't, okay? I've focused on what it is, what it isn't. Backsliding. Forgivable lapses of the believer, okay? Because we t- there is a tendency in our sinful hearts to drift away, okay? And a Christian who's been drifting away from Christ may be troubled by that, and wondering, is there a way back? Well, yes, they need to be reassured that there is a way back. If they're troubled by it, we should be encouraging them. Mm. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is not backsliding. It's not doubting either. You remember John the Baptist mm. had doubts at one point? Yeah. Are you the coming one, the one who is coming, or should we be looking for someone else? Now, Jesus answered his disciples, John's disciples, didn't criticise John. He did criticise Thomas, you know, you should be believing. But doubts, having those doubts of perplexity like John the Baptist 
or unbelief, like Thomas, they're all resolved in the personal work of Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Okay? And the last one, um, being angry with God. There are many laments in the Bible, especially the Psalms. What are God's children to say to God when the divine government of the world seems derelict? When it looks like God's stepped off his throne and the world is in chaos? How are they to relate to God when needless tragedy is experienced? Lamenting to God, whether in anguish or anger, is not to commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's to be real. And Graham Coles says this. He suspects God prefers to be related to in anger by his children than not to be related to at all. So anxious Christians who are wondering whether they've committed the unpardonable sin by blaspheming against the spirit need to be helped to name what they're experiencing and so pass to the calling. So um, I thought that hopefully those are three helpful things and they're not mine. They're, I pinched that from Graham Cole's wonderful mm. chapter mm. on um, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So I hope that. Helps. Okay, thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> I'm sure John would be more than happy to put up the book up in the Padlet or on Facebook um, for us to be able to access that.